As we share together in the gospel lesson today, I want to ask us to hear it in, in a different way. Many times we stand in honor of the gospel, but this morning I want to encourage us to overhear these words and hear if there's an image of surrender that speaks to us. Sometimes for me, I hear it best when I even close my eyes and see what words God would bring to my attention. So I invite us to overhear the gospel lesson this morning, John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who lose their life, those who love their life, lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So when I was in the seventh grade, which has been a little while ago, I participated in the science fair. Anybody else ever have that opportunity to do a science fair project? Okay. Uh, you know, that seems to be even still something that, that happens uh, in probably your middle school years, um, maybe even early high school. But if you never got to have this experience, you need to know that the science fair always begins by learning the scientific method. Remember that? How first you have to ask the right question. They call it a question of inquiry. And then you form a hypothesis in response to your question. How do you think things are going to turn out? Then you begin to test your hypothesis to see if you are correct. And then you analyze your data in response to what you find. And then you make a response to your hypothesis. Well, so I began to ask my question of inquiry and I did my research. And what I found uh, in my uh, question of inquiry, can seeds grow upside down? was that seeds must have the following to germinate and grow. Number one, proper light. Some need a lot of light, some don't need as much. Number two, moisture. Number three, oxygenated soil. And number four, the right temperature range. So with my dad's help, in order to test my hypothesis, I designed a frame that would hold two pots 
one right side up and the other upside down. In the middle of the frame, we attached a growth light, and then I controlled for as many of the variables as I could. I planted the seeds at the same time. I gave them the same amount of water. They were in the same soil, the same size pots, and I kept them in our cellar so that I could control the temperature and I could control that there were no outside sources of light, only that grow light that was in the middle of these two pots. So I made sure that all four ingredients that I had heard were necessary for germination and growth were available to both seeds. Within days of my planting, you'll be excited to know, my seeds sprouted. You know how exciting that is? You know, when you plant something, you're like, oh, there it comes. It's coming out of the ground. And they both, they sprouted well and they were growing well until about the two-week mark. The seed that I had planted in the pot that was upside down began to take a turn, literally. It, it actually started growing toward the sky. And, and the change was so dramatic that within a, just a very few days, this seedling that had been so strong and healthy began to struggle. You see, its light source was underneath it, but that didn't stop it from aiming for the sky, even though, as far as it knew, the sky was dark. Within a few more weeks, it died while the other seedling grew into a healthy, strong plant. And I received the warning of my science teacher that you should never use anything alive for your science fair project. I didn't win any awards with that project because by the time the science fair occurred, I had no real experiment to show. So, you know, there just wasn't any reason uh, for, for me to move on. Uh, into the next level of the science fair and that kind of thing. But I sure learned a lot in that experience about being wrong. That was a very powerful learning for me. And actually, I think out of all of the experiment that I did, that was the best learning that I had. You see, I had done some initial research on this project, and I couldn't find any evidence to support whether growing seeds upside down is possible or not. Now remember, this is a long time before Google right? There's no internet. Do you know where I did my research? Encyclopedias. You remember the, the volumes, you know, and the number of books? And, and so I went to our library and found a few other resources, a few journal articles that they had on microfish. Remember that? And I did all the research I could, and, and nowhere could I find whether seeds could grow upside down or not. And so I was really excited because I thought, I have stumbled across a brand new idea. No one has ever tested this before. And I might be the first person to discover that indeed, seeds can grow upside down given the proper conditions. So for those of you who are interested in my experience, we can talk details later. It'll be a hoot. <laughs> but what I want you to know this morning is that I'm offering this as an illustration for the sermon because I think this experience of mine can help us find a deeper meaning in the text from John's Gospel. As you examine the text this morning, and if you have your Bibles or you're looking in your Bible app, I want to encourage you to look at the context around the scripture that I read this morning, which is John 12, 20-33. As you look at this particular text, what you'll notice is that just immediately before this text is the story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. 
And the story that comes right before that story in the Gospel of John is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Remember that beautiful verse in uh, John chapter 11, he stinketh, right? And then all of a sudden, Lazarus, come forth, and he does. And so all of these things are are forming the, the launching pad for what we read in John chapter 12. So when Jesus says, and you'll, you'll remember these verses from our text today, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, in that verse, Jesus is challenging several hypotheses that all of us would make in the same situation that indeed turn out to be false. They're wrong. For example, hypothesis number one. If Jesus really loved Lazarus, he would have come earlier and prevented his death. This seems a reasonable hypothesis. Even one of Lazarus' sisters promoted that hypothesis. But indeed, what turns out to be true is that Jesus saw Lazarus' death as a much greater opportunity to bring his message to the world than healing Lazarus would have given him. Lazarus' sister's hypothesis turns out to be wrong. Another hypothesis that we might form is that Jesus is finally being recognized as the Messiah when he enters Jerusalem with the waving of palms and the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. And we might even promote this hypothesis next week on Palm Sunday as we sing our praises to the King. But indeed, what turns out to be true is that Jesus' hour of glory comes when he offers himself in full full sacrifice. Less than a week later, he is crucified. And many of those same people who were welcoming him will be the ones calling for his death. In the beginning of today's text, there's this interesting little insertion there about the Greeks And how they they are even beginning, the Gentiles, those who have no uh, root system in the the faith of Judaism, but are observing what's happening in and around Palestine and particularly around Jerusalem, and they begin to come and ask to see Jesus. We might form a hypothesis that since even the Greeks and the Gentiles are beginning to follow Jesus, surely this means he is gaining strength and momentum. Turns out to be false. What we find out is that Jesus' hour of glory, and this is how he refers to it in the text, comes when he offers himself in full sacrifice, for he intends to be that grain of wheat, bearing fruit only when it dies so that it can live again. He's not just sharing with them the cycle of life. He's saying, no, no, this is me. This is going to happen to me. So the question that our text poses for me, and I would encourage us to think about this today, what hypothesis or hypotheses have I formed, have you formed, that following Jesus causes us to overturn? Because there are many hypotheses that we live under, many assumptions, but when we say yes to following Jesus, they sometimes get overturned. They turn out to be false So what does that look like in your life? 
In this text, Jesus goes on to talk about losing your life to save it. Huh? Right? He says, you can only follow me through serving others. What? And that God's honor is actually going to be bestowed upon those who serve, not those who lead. Huh? It surely feels like that Jesus is trying to overturn our assumption to cause us to question our hypotheses. And for me, the journey of Lent is really that experience. Releasing my hold on how I want the story to be told. Letting go of my expectations. Relinquishing control. In fact, I would say I think that's really at the core discipline of fasting. And many Christians during the season of Lent intentionally fast from something because it reminds us every time we go without that we are releasing our need for whatever that is that we have chosen to give up. So what hypotheses have we formed that following Jesus will cause us to overturn? What do we need to be true so much that we will resist Jesus' influence because it threatens the outcome we desire? And where does the good news of the gospel impede our goals and objectives? The word for this act of surrender in the spiritual life is relinquishment. Relinquishment requires a lot of courage. And any time it has been forced upon you, you'll know that, right? It requires a lot of honesty and vulnerability. And finally, it asks us to trust in God's goodness and provision. The result of true relinquishment, if we're able to offer it completely and fully, is finally contentment or freedom. Because, friends, it wasn't ever ours to control in the first place. And when we can let it go, we can discover this beautiful inner peace and contentment, sometimes known as freedom. It's like the seed's willingness to shed its seed coat, which means it will die so that it might produce something far beyond itself. In Jesus' example, notice that the seed understands that it was made for this next iteration. I mean, think about it. A seed might not have to die. It can stay stuck away in some sort of seed depository or maybe in a drawer where you forget about it. I mean, where are those packets of seeds of forget-me-nots that we mailed to you at the beginning of Lent? Mine haven't made it to the ground yet, right? And, and in that way, the seed remains the seed. But if you think about it from the seed's perspective, if that's all that happens, that is true death. The only way that the seed intends to live is for it to be planted and give up its life for what comes next. Thankfully, the seeds understand that and they can release themselves so much easier than we can. May we learn from the seed. At the beginning of our time of worship today, I offered you one of my favorite prayers of relinquishment from Richard Foster, but I want to close today with one of my other favorite prayers of relinquishment. Some of you might recognize it. It's called uh, the Covenant Prayer. It was lifted to visibility by John Wesley when he began to encourage the early Methodists to have this watch night service 
Um, they did it on December the 31st. We observed it here on January the 3rd, the first Sunday of the year. And this prayer forms kind of the locus of this experience of renewing our covenant with God as the new year begins. So I want to share just a few lines from this prayer with you as a way of giving you words for relinquishment. The prayer begins with these simple words. I am no longer my own, but thine. You could even memorize that. I am no longer my own, but thine. If that is your only prayer, you will have prayed a prayer of relinquishment. Many of us anticipate the the night that Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, not my will, but yours be done, O God. He's embracing these words of relinquishment. I am no longer my own, but thine. As the prayer continues, notice that each line includes opposing relinquishments. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. If you want to know what the opposite of doing is, it's not doing anything. That is suffering. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed by thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee, brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. Isn't that beautiful? I just, every time I pray that prayer, there's something in there for me right in that moment. The remaining words of this prayer remind us that relinquishment must be offered freely. Life may force relinquishment on you sometimes, friends, but God never will. Relinquishment cannot be forced. It has to come from our own volition or our own decision. In terms of what God has asked of us to relinquish, that is something that we decide to do. We offer it to God because we trust that whatever God has for us is better than anything we might have for ourselves. So let me share with you these final words of the covenant prayer. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. Right? That's why Jesus went to the cross Because he was willing to relinquish and to fully trust in God's purposes, not his own. That is relinquishment. A seed falls to the ground and gives itself over to something it could never achieve on its own. Offering that gift willingly. It's a challenge when the hypotheses that we've set our heart on get turned upside down. With this new truth that Jesus brings. But I would tell you this friends. It is in the upside down. That the promise of new life is realized. So let us not be afraid. To move from death to life. As the cross begins to appear. On the horizon for us. Amen.